good. I would like to request some of your kind attention, some thoughts on uh, what we're doing here. Uh, let me start uh, responding to request for sources for the elephant path. Uh, I wish that was so straightforward. The uh, oldest textual references to the nine stages of settling the mind are fourth uh, century AD Indian text. An author named Asanga held not just in high esteem by Indian philosophers, but also by the Tibetan tradition nowadays. So he is the first, to my knowledge, to outline the path of stillness in these nine stages. There are other forms of reference to the path um, speaking of stillness in the Pali Suttas, which speak in slightly different terms, and there is uh, an agreement that, um, well, actually, there isn't an agreement, to be honest. Um, there is an opinion, there are a variety of opinions that. The nine stages of the elephant path leading up to the first jhana. Unfortunately, the term for the ninth stage, named upajara, is an identical term that is used in Pali for a type of samadhi that is uh, rather at the beginning than at the end of that path. So there are many confusing pitfalls if you want to go by terms. I think the power and the beauty of this story is it's it is not actually just to be found in the textual reference that can quite clearly be traced to that fourth century. Uh, Asanga has a number of famous texts. One of them is the Abhidharma Samudjaya. Uh, one of them is a treatise distinguishing the middle from the extremes. Um, uh, there is the garland of Mahayana Sutras, the Mahayana Sutra Lamkara. Just a warning, if you want to get in there, it's going to be a long haul, yeah? So this is not bedtime reading. Um, I think the power and the beauty of, these, of this teaching is not just the textual reference, but actually what the oral tradition, probably very early on, has started to mm, outline with the pictorial aids. Now, I told you that the actual image I handed out is probably rather late in origin. We are not aware of anything older than the 19th century. Yeah, so there's a huge gap, there's 1500 years in between. However, um, Indian climate is not famous for being particularly kind to uh, the preservation of books and images. So we, we don't have many Indian pictorial witnesses going back to the day of uh, basically Asanga. We have a few frescoes here and there, but most of the pictorial stuff has been nibbled away by the tooth of time. We do know from other texts that the mind being likened to an elephant is as old as the Pali texts. 
that's quite quite obvious in the Pali, there are numerous references of the mind being likened to an elephant in its power, both when tamed and useful, and dangerous when crazy and mad and besotted and uh, in heat. Yeah. So you have to think this is a collective uh, effort, this elephant path. Somebody with the philosophical bent of mind and an understanding of uh, contemplative training has outlined various stages, as we do not find them in Pali. You know, these nine stages, we do not find them ex in, in explicit these ways. That's one of the things, obviously, why they have come about, is because they are were felt to be missing. You know, we have a bit of the map, but then sometimes the in-between bits, we would love a little more granularity. I personally keep uh, having this hankering. I would love more granularity uh, when the Buddha speaks about the uh, arising of insight. Yeah. What is a little insight? What is a kind of more substantial insight? What is a trenchant insight? What is a you know, uh, transforming insight? And you see that Buddhist traditions uh, tries to furnish that. Yeah. The, the Pali commentarial tradition has tried to furnish differentiating different layers of jnana, as you can see, particularly in the teachings of, say, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw school, which has made a great uh, uh, emphasis on differing jnanas, which individually do not occur anywhere in the Pali suttas. Yeah. But they, they were felt... It was felt that the blues, the sketch, the blueprint of contemplative practice, the path of insight, or the path of samatha, is lacking some kind of defining marks, how we get on there. What, okay, this is the problem, and this is the solution, but uh, it'd be nice to have more than just three stages in there, you know, or four stages, sotapati, sakadagami, anagami, arahatapala, wonderful. It'd be nice to know how you get from being a well-intended practicing putujana to being uh, a completely free human being with a few more, uh, you know, ideas how far this goes or whether you're on the right track or what would be a telltale sign that you've passed this mark or that you've, you know, sailed past this boy or so. And there is some of this there in the Pali, and some of it is not there. And traditions generally furnish that. In Pali, the tradition has been doing this in the commentary. In the uh, Indian, other Indian Buddhist traditions, uh, big treatises have been written, or uh, anthologies have been written, or summaries have been written, uh, attributed to famous teachers who had access to bodies of text we have lost today. There's much that has been lost, not just by Muslim invaders who burnt down monasteries in the 12th and the 10th century uh, before they completely took over northern India. But, uh, you know, traditions not always look after their stuff. And then there's the rats, and then there is things go out of fashion, and uh, the stuff is precious. So we have some glimpses of what has happened, and we have a few surviving traditions. And... Um, you know, teachers have always found what they have found and in the light of their personal experience have explained things and uh, um, try to uh, translate 
into their time and in for the needs of their audiences and i believe this elephant path is a beautiful example of this so, an, an old node of scriptural proper sanskrit terms referring to proper stages identified by a contemplative master and then uh, other people have embellished this with iconography with analogies with have teased out uh, the varieties of uh, challenges that occur yeah so you end up with little rabbits and monkeys and fruit and uh, you know ropes and fires and things like that the um, there's a number of contemporary translators who have uh, translated comprehensively Tibetan texts, making references to these teachings, uh, many of them from the Karmakagyu tradition. So if you're hot on this, I'm happy to furnish more references. But don't expect a neat little reference where you can just go look it all up and it's nicely explained and indexed and with glossary and individual images um, outlined. If you want to do so, go when you go home, Google is your friend. You will find elephant path, nine stages, that should get you, that should be the rest of your day, basically. <laughs> it's worth, one can do worse things with Google than that. Yeah. Good. I left off yesterday outlining these four dimensions just briefly mention those four dimensions I, I described yesterday. Let me just name them. Let's call the first one settling the baby, you know, learning to still body and mind. Um, the second one is taking a step back, learning to de-identify and establish perspective. Uh, the third one, let's call this um, meeting my angels and demons. Yeah. Doing the personal work, acknowledging the qualities and the hang-ups of this particular mind, its responses, its conditioning, its strength, how it responds to what it meets. That's a major part of the path. And finally, uh, the, the last dimension, let's call this uh, getting the bigger picture, learning to understand the personal in universal terms again. These four dimensions have some overlap, obviously, to the four satipatthanas, although they don't quite match. It's clear that practicing with the body and the breath have a lot to do with settling the baby and learning to still. Yeah. Um, then the map doesn't quite converge anymore. Uh, that, so that is definitely the task of body based awareness, learning to establish an awareness uh, that is capable of attending continually and with some subtlety to body states, embodied somatic qualities. I do not see how you can really uh, find depth and transformative experience in your meditation unless you have a capacity to be with your body. Yeah, I would think. If you do have profound samadhi and you do not find it possible to be with your body, you're at risk. 
that is very obvious to me after many years of seeing people trying to get into highly mentalized phenomena, uh, possibly a little bit, uh, you know, it's always the talented one one has to worry about because it's the, the untalented one. They will not use the instruments to their peril, but it's the talented one one has to be concerned about because it is possible with meditation to um, do things that are not, not healthy. Yeah, it has to be acknowledged. This is a powerful tool, and like every powerful tool, there are possibilities for things going wrong. So losing the body or not having a ground in embodied somatic awareness seems to me an unhealthy way of trying to go about meditation. This is your foundation for stillness. This is what the most reliable ground for stillness to be earthed, centered, uh, truly embodied in the, in the true sense of that word. Um, being able to focus your mind on some mental phenomenon uh, can, can be wholesome, but it can also, it, it bears the risk of you basically being split off on some obsessive little side task, which may, nothing, may have nothing to do with your life. It may have nothing to do with transformative effort. It may have nothing to do with, with health. You may just obsess, you know. Obsession is a form of concentration. And so the meditative safeguard, both for effectiveness of stillness and for health in the progress of contemplative, uh, on, the, on the contemplative path, is the lifeline is the capacity to return to the body, its needs, its experience, its intelligence, and the many dimensions of body. Yeah. Some of them are coarse and physical, uh, some of them are more subtle and energetic. Some of them are sublime. And, um, you know, they go beyond the range of what we can simply name or what our everyday language is capable of re referring. You know, there, there are differing bodies we inhabit. And uh, the fine-tunement of your awareness to the differing dimensions of your embodied reality is part of that path. And also part of the safeguard on that path. The task of Vedanupassana is clearly to stop the carousel, to stop the merry-go-round of grasping after pleasant things and trying to avoid unpleasant things, to establish a capacity of um, embodied, attuned, relational mindfulness that is capable to be with things by virtue of choice rather than by virtue of being pulled there or being pushed away from. In, Mac, in fact, much of Buddhist mind training is about just that, learning to unclutch our powers of attention from the simple pull of pleasure and the simple push of this pleasure. Learning to establish that quality of attentiveness and uh, fluid attentiveness, when infused with ethical qualities and with wisdom qualities, this turns into mindfulness, establishing that irrespective of push and pull. That's one of the tasks of Vedanupasana, learning to be there for what happens, not because it's nice or because I want to get away from it. You know, just learning to have that mindfulness available irrespective 
of the portion pole. So that we reclaim authorship of that mindfulness rather than having to leave it to the uh, intrinsic pull and the intrinsic push of sense objects that decide about the availability of mindfulness. So that's the major task of Vedan Upasana. Chitta Upasana is where purification happens, is where stilling happens, is where uh, sober acknowledgement happens of both our strengths and our hang-ups. So Chitta Upasana is probably where you're going to do much work. This is where your happiness happens. This is where your suffering happens. Um, not just the displeasure, but actually the suffering that comes from displeasure. Uh, this is where our reactiveness and this is where our understanding and growth happens. So Chitta Upasana is a huge chunk. And uh, that chunk is best approached when we have learned to still the mind and when we have learned to establish an attentiveness that is capable of actually being tamed and willing to do the work of understanding, willing to do the work of holding. Chitta Upasana in many ways is a sort of alchemical process. It's we have a vessel and that vessel uh, has strong walls. The strength of these walls comes together through our sila, our commitment to ethical living. Also the ethical living of meditators, which isn't about just not killing mosquitoes, it, it is about that third of the charitas, the third uh, forms of conduct that I um, mentioned yesterday, which is um, the mental one, that I do not affirm intentions that arise in my mind on the basis of my history and uh, karmic proclivities, but when I recognize them to be unwholesome, I do not consent to them. I do not affirm them. I do not give my energy to them. I can't stop myself from having these impulses arise on the basis of the workings of karma and vipaka, but I can make a choice to not give my energy to them, not believe them, not follow them, not nourish them, not, not try to rationalize them, not try to substantiate them, not perceptually... Um, try to corroborate them. I have a choice. And that's a meditator's decision to practice wholesome intention, is when unwholesome intentions arise, as they are likely to, then I do not give them my energy. I do not give them my consent. I do not allow them to take over my mind. I do not allow them to take over my thinking. I do not try to prove to myself that I am right in this. This is a task and that means um, that has something to do with practicing citta and upasana, acknowledging uh, the proclivities of this mind and directing and weighing, you know, weighing what is wholesome and what is not. So the vessel the alchemical vessel begins with the, the walls created from trust in my sila. The sila also that I know unwholesomeness in this mind. I know wholesomeness in this mind. I can strengthen the one and I can at least not feed the other one. If possible, I can just let the unwholesome die out. Or if the unwholesome 
threatens to flood me, I can say no. I can say I am not giving myself to this. We do have choices. The other aspect of the strength of the wall of our alchemical vessel is uh, stillness. And within the stillness and within my trust in my wholesome intentions, I have a container which allows me to feel everything I feel. I can give myself complete permission because I know it's not going to flood over into speech and action. I know this because I know the walls of my vessel are strong. I can, with such knowledge, completely allow myself to feel my madness, my obsessions, my desires, my anxieties, my confusion. I can allow myself to feel this, to hold this, to acknowledge this. And because the container is safe, has made it safe to feel this, um, I can allow it by holding it in thus, in this way, to transform. So a meditator is somebody who is willing to feel what he or she feels, is willing to think what he or she thinks, is willing to have the experience he or she is having, knowing that the, that the walls of this alchemical vessel are strong and safe, that my mental and psychological word will not spill over into speech and action. And because I know this, I completely am allowed to feel this. And because I'm willing to feel and acknowledge this, it is allowed to peter out. It is allowed to transform itself. So this is all in the crucible of Chitta Nupassana. And then Dhamma Nupassana, it's kind of, you're taking stock. The task of Dhamma Nupassana is connecting the dots, getting the bigger picture. Mm. Understanding, say, causality. Understanding freedom. You cannot understand causality and conditionality from the now alone. You cannot understand being in the moment doesn't teach you anything about conditionality. Being in the moment only teaches you how it is now and how you react and how you can hold this. That's beautiful, that's powerful. But it never teaches you anything that your dental bill has a conditional relationship to your sugar consumption. Yeah, because one has happened a long time ago, which was sweet, and the other one, when you open the envelope and look at the figure, is bitter. Yeah? And there just doesn't seem to be any connection. Yeah? So by chopping up the world into seconds of just present moment, actually begins at some point to deny processes that go from moment to moment. So there are things you cannot understand just from a bloated being in the here and now. There are things you need to see from a bigger perspective. You know, what are the conditions that actually have led to this heart stopping to grieve about something? This is not something you can just understand now. That takes time. And it takes, to acknowledge this process, it takes a perspective that acknowledges duration, that acknowledges the elapsing of time. The same way... You know, the relationship between, say, awakening factors and, uh, and the transformation of your heart or the development of stillness, that doesn't happen instantaneously. You need to have some perspective how things accumulate, how the path is both gradual in its effort and in its application, and how sometimes uh, the result of such cumulative build-up is sudden 
Now, if you're just there with the suddenness of a change, or the suddenness of a mind dropping into samadhi, or the suddenness of your illusions about stability falling away, you underestimate the power of cumulative work. Yeah. So, uh, the fourth of the contemplations acknowledges both the gradual development and sometimes the sudden fruition of that development. Just because it feels sudden doesn't mean that the causes that have led to it uh, are not gradual. Some of our life is cumulative. And some of it is sudden, trenchant, poignantly exploding into our faces. Yeah? Or just we dropping a layer, tzak, boom, and suddenly you, realize you have another perspective. You say, wow, was that always there? You know, and, and I have just you know, been looking for the grass on the other side of the planet, or, or did I just make this one? It's very likely that, you know, something in you reaches a critical mass and then things change. Just because the change is sudden doesn't mean that the reaching of the critical mass hasn't been gradual. So, the fourth of the Satipatthanas teaches us something about the bigger connections. So, how the mind is construed and how the mind constructs reality. That is a profound understanding that can be gained, say, from the khandhas. Um, one of the aspects of this fourth uh, Satipatthana is, uh, in the Theravada Pali is the Four Noble Truths. And I wanted to give you a little sample of how Thai teachers, Thai forest teachers have uh, referred to these four truths. I wanted to read you something. This is not very famous, unless you happen to be familiar with that tradition, and that is an attempt to connect the Satipatthanas with the four truths. Um, one of them, actually the most famous one, is from a man called Lumpu Dun, and he re- refers to the four the four truths uh, in this way. He says, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. The result coming from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering. The mind, seeing the mind clearly, is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. So you have a mind with proclivity to seek gratification by going outwards, by seeking stimulants um, as the reason for suffering to arise. This is Samudaya. The result of doing so, uh, in other words, the consent of the meditator or of the human being to let the mind seek its happiness and uh, enact its moods by going outside is basically the suffering. Dukkha, the path then is the mind's atten- intention to begin to see itself, to begin to see its own workings. And this uh, is what leads to the cessation of suffering. And finally, the fruition of the mind seeing the mind uh, 
is um, the cessation of suffering, Niroda. It sounds a little more poetic in Thai. There's another version of this, which I thought is quite interesting. Uh, I have to translate here. The citta that with under the influence of tanha and proliferation, papancha, follows its uh, feeling tones, vedana, is the reason the f- the is, is the reason for the arising of, suf- of suffering. The fruit of such activity, the mind following its inclinations, following its proliferations on the basis of um, Vedana, pleasant and unpleasant, uh, this, the result of this is Dukkha and Upadana, Dukkha and grasping. With the help of Sati, that sees the body, that sees feeling tone, that sees the mind and that sees states of mind, this is the practice of the path. The fruit of the practice of the path, of sati, seeing both body, feeling tone, the, the mind's workings and the object of mind, uh, the fruit of this is the cessation of the path and the cessation of upadana. I read you another translation of the first teaching. The mind sent outside is the origination of suffering. The result of the mind sent outside is suffering. The mind seeing the mind is the path. The result of the mind seeing the mind is the cessation of suffering. Good. I'm going to post one of these um, at the uh, board so that you can copy it or reread it if you wish. Thank you.
Please uh, practice. Uh, I'll be around today seeing groups this morning. Also, I, I haven't forgotten the, um, my promise on giving you my top 10 on Satipatthana books and uh, another uh, decorously short list of books I uh, think would be worth uh, consulting on, a, on Buddhist teachings or on Buddhist history. And uh, I haven't just completely finished the list, but I have not forgotten. I'll make sure that you get a copy, or that you, if you want a copy, that there are copies available. Um, if you really want a long list, sort of the top 100 on early Buddhism, I recommend having a look at bodhiinstitute.org's website. Uh, it has uh, a growing number of reading recommendations, which will teach you more about Buddhist teachings that you, than you possibly can want to read. Yeah.